Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of the Felony Friday podcast. Today we have another great episode lined up for you. Uh, Felony Friday, as our regular listeners know by now, is a weekly show we have every Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And during each show, we focus on injustices in the broken criminal justice system. Now, before we get started and before I introduce my guest, uh, do me a favor and I want to tell you where you can find the show notes are. So make a mental note where you can find them. Or if, if you're sitting at a computer desk, you can just go look at them right now or on your phone. You can find them at lionsofliberty.com slash ff12. lionsofliberty.com slash ff12. Check out the show notes. And in the show notes, this is important. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can find a link in those show notes to rate the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes. Uh, That really helps us out a lot. If you can give us a five-star rating, leave a little comment. That is a huge help, and we thank you for doing that. My guest today, uh, you've probably heard his voice before many times on this Lions of Liberty podcast network is Mr. J.B. Lubin. J.B. has been a frequent guest on the hit show, Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, which we haven't really had one, an official one, for a little while. But we've substituted that show with our presidential debate reaction shows, which we've had probably far too many of those. But J.B. is a frequent guest on those. And I always like talking to J.B. because I think we come at liberty from different angles, Uh, My background is more in the – or I shouldn't say background. I should say before I came to learn about the philosophy of liberty and learn about the principles of liberty, which I was introduced to by Ron Paul, I came from more of a conservative slash neoconservative angle. And I think JB came more from a uh, progressive type liberal angle. So it's always fun to hear his perspective on things. And before I introduce JB, little known fact about him, I was at a a wedding with him this weekend, mutual friend in New Jersey – and JB did the best man speech. And I got to say, I'm not even just saying this to, you know, to boast up JB and, and to hold him up. It was probably the best, best man speech you've ever heard. So, you know, I'm just going to set the bar really high for this podcast. And with that being said, JB, welcome to Felony Friday. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for that wonderful intro. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. It was good seeing you this past weekend. Good to hang out and uh, catch up and throw a few cold ones back and have a good time. Yeah, it's been a while since we've met face-to-face, you know? It was fun. Glad it happened. Yeah, it's been uh, a lot of the uh, the podcast talking, but uh, yeah, it was definitely good to get the, the old face-to-face interaction. That's always fun. So, JB, before we start talking about these felonies, just wanted to really just ask you a general question. I talked about a little bit in the intro about, you know, you come from more of a liberal, progressive background. What really attracted you, first of all, to the ideas of liberty? Well, I don't know. I guess it was a sense that just really, as I got older, I started to see more of the similarities between, you know, we always talk about the, I guess, the left-right divide in American politics. But as I got older and more informed, I started to realize that they were basically one and the same. And they use pretty much the same exact tactics, only occasionally different towards different goals. And I just wanted to basically remove myself from that, um, I guess, dichotomy is the word I'm looking for. I'm not certain about that. And look towards a more, um, I guess, a freedom-focused philosophy. 
I think that's pretty much what veered me away from being, I guess you could say, a card-carrying Democrat to, you know, more of a liberty lover. Would you say even when you were a, uh, a card-carrying Democrat that you still were uh, suspicious and took issue with the criminal justice system at that time as well? Or is that something that shifted as you started to more closely align with liberty? Um, most certainly. I don't know if, if you'll agree with me, but I would say at least generally, I find that progressives and I guess Democrats are a little bit more suspicious of the criminal justice system than your typical Republican. I would absolutely agree with you. So, yeah, that's always been, you know, in the system, so to speak. And that probably has a lot to do with why I was more of a progressive growing up. So not much has changed in that avenue. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So we're going to start out, um, as you can probably tell by now, we do have two different show formats here. This is going to be more of a conversational show. We're going to talk about a couple different felonies trending in the news and play our uh, favorite game show at the end, Is This a Crime and Should Anyone Do Time? So with that being said, let's jump in. The first thing I want to talk about today in the news this week, the Supreme Court rejected a challenge to the Colorado marijuana law from other states. So what happened here, this actually happened on Monday, this past Monday, the Supreme Court rejected a, uh, a challenge to this marijuana, the marijuana legislation laws adopted in Colorado that you know obviously permit you to uh, buy and sell and use drugs. I was just in Colorado uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, I can attest that these stores do exist. Drove by them and saw them, and they are real. So it's happening. They're rioting and, the, and burning cars in the streets and raids. Yes, every, every, running about. Or was it? A I believe perfectly. I, normal I believe the place proper word is it's anarchy. It's anarchy everywhere. It's it's chaos. People, yeah. Chaotic. I knew it. <laughs> It's crazy. It was craziness. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting, though, because what's happened here is the state of Colorado has obviously legalized it and the states surrounding it. They're suffering from some of the effects of it still being prohibited there. So some effects of the black market trade. When I say effects, I mean some of the negative impacts of the black market trade. And they're not liking it. So rather than trying to legalize it themselves or look at decriminalizing it possibly or some other avenue like that, They have pursued this legal stance. And this is in Nebraska and Oklahoma. Authorities in Nebraska and Oklahoma have argued that the Colorado law violates the Federal Controlled Substances Act, which this act treats marijuana as a dangerous drug, which is a ridiculous thing, and forbids it uh, for sale or for use. Now, they urge the Supreme Court to take this issue up as an original matter and declare that Colorado's law preempted federal drug laws. And I mean, I don't know how you feel about this particular aspect of it, but I think the states kind of have a point because it does preempt the federal drug laws. I mean, Colorado is stepping outside of the federal jurisdiction and they're really sort of nullifying it. Well, that's true. But the Justice Department has basically, I guess, informed its its authorities to focus more on trafficking and not so much, you know, personal use of marijuana, they're more or less turning a blind eye to it. This Justice Department doesn't care. So if the federal law enforcement branch doesn't care to enforce this law, I don't really think it's really a state concern at that point because it is a federal law. And if the federal government doesn't want to prosecute this law, then I feel like that's their prerogative, really. 
It is their prerogative, right? But it it begs the question, if they're not going to prosecute the law, then why is it even on the books? That's a good question, John. I don't know. Marijuana is still a Schedule One drug in this country, even though it's been proven time and time again to have valid medical uses. So, like, the whole law in itself is ridiculous and should be changed, but there's not enough pressure in the federal government to do so, especially since states can pretty much do whatever they want, apparently. So there's even less pressure in the federal government to change the scheduling status. So they just basically let it go. It's easier just to ignore it than to actually make effective change in in D.C. That's how I see it. I think so. It's easier to take on a state-by-state basis, but... I mean, it does make sense that these states, because they haven't legalized, are suffering from effects from it. A quote from the argument, this is a direct quote, I think mostly direct, Colorado authorizes overseas and protects profits from a sprawling 100 million per month marijuana growing processing and retailing organization that exports thousands of pounds of marijuana to some 36 states in 2014. If this entity were based south of the border i.e. Mexico, the federal government would prosecute it as a drug cartel. I think that's true. I mean, they would, yeah, you would have, uh, you know, the DEA and your federal agents trying to shut that down. So why is it different? Why is Colorado viewed differently than a foreign entity? Well, that's a good question. I would first say that this is particularly about, I guess, states' rights, And being a, I guess, a progressive growing up, I loathe to use the term states' rights for obvious reasons. But in the same article, 22 states allow some form of legalized marijuana, most of them medicinal, but that's, what, 40%, maybe a little bit more than 40% of the states. And I think the mindset of marijuana legalization is shifting towards the more, I guess, pro side. And... As far as cartels and foreign borders are concerned, it's not like the state of Texas can sue Mexico in the international court of law for allowing cartels because it's really out of their hands. I'm probably not making my argument very well for this because I think they do have a point. But when the Supreme Court decided not to look at this case, only Thomas and Alito dissented. And Mm -hmm. their argument for allowing this case was that it posed some a significant harm to their sovereign interests. And I don't really feel that's the case. What Colorado decides to do within its own borders is really its own business. If they want to, they're not preventing Nebraska and Oklahoma from preventing marijuana from entering their borders or prosecuting people who traffic in marijuana or doing anything to prevent them from upholding their own personal laws or the federal laws outside of their borders. So I don't think they have a just reason to sue them over their own laws, basically, because they're not preventing them from doing whatever they want themselves. That makes sense. And I mean, don't get me wrong here. I'm happy with this ruling. You know, I think marijuana obviously should be legal throughout the United States in every state. It shouldn't even be considered a drug. I'd prefer if these states didn't, you know, try to profit off it and tax it and use it to grow government even larger. But it's better than throwing, you know, people who haven't harmed anyone, you know, people who have committed these so-called crimes without victims. It's better than throwing them in a cage. Obviously, I'm happy about this ruling. But I think these states bring up a a good point that I think 
we're probably going to see more of as more and more states legalize and decriminalize marijuana. They'll see some of these effects spill over into other states, much like with gun laws, when you see states that have a you know very strict, uh, you know, I think like in Illinois, and I think Illinois actually loosened their gun laws recently, but they used to have a very strict you know, anti-gun laws. And what you would see is the black market trade for guns, for illegal guns in that area uptick because the demand was still there and it just put it on the black market and usually in a more dangerous manner. That's the effect of any type of prohibition. And I honestly feel if Nebraska and Oklahoma really have a problem with this, their best option is just to legalize it themselves and save themselves a lot of money in their criminal justice and law enforcement agencies, prosecuting overwhelmingly nonviolent offenders. I agree with you. And you mentioned before the show that you had a little bit of background on the precedence of a case like this, of a state suing another state. Do you want to give a few words on that? Well, it happens more often than I thought. They're called original actions. And from what little bit of reading I did, it seems like, as you would suspect, they're overwhelmingly about border disputes and waterways. Like one state wants to dam up a waterway and the other state, like it flows downstream to another state and they're not particularly pleased about it, which is um, mostly what these original actions are about. But there have been a few about, I guess you could call, commerce cases, which I think this probably would fall under the jurisdiction of really, as far as, you know, marijuana is legal in Colorado. So it's a a form of commerce there. But I can't really seem to find any consensus or any like, I guess, I don't know, logic to what they decide to see or not. Like, for example, this case, they decided to dismiss. And I saw in 1939, Alabama versus Arizona was seen by the Supreme Court and dismissed because Alabama wanted to stop the prohibition of prison-made goods in 19 states. So apparently 19 states decided that they wanted to outlaw the import of prison-made goods. And I guess Alabama had a lot of this going on in their prison system and sued these states to allow the import of their prison-made goods. And that was thrown out. But in 1992 and 1981 particularly in Maryland versus Louisiana, Louisiana was sued for imposing a tax on natural gas that was pumped in from federal controlled waterways in the Gulf, I guess, and processed there that only other states had to pay. So the natural gas that stayed in the state wasn't taxed, but any that was exported after processing in Louisiana, a tax was implied on which made a little bit of sense to me because it seemed like Louisiana was imposing a tariff on other states mm-hmm. for like allowing the processing and, and travel of this natural gas for their state. That was in 1981. But in 1992, Wyoming was allowed to sue Oklahoma for imposing a law that required their power plants to use 10% coal that was mined in Oklahoma when I think a majority of their power plants were using 100% Wyoming coal. And they said that hurt their interest and the taxes that they levied on coal production in their state. And that was allowed too. So I don't really know how this Commerce Clause is applied from case to case. I don't know if you know a little bit more about it than me, if you would want to share some light. I know you didn't read these, but based on what I said, do you (laughs) you have any thoughts on that? I don't have anything else to add on the Commerce Clause specifically, but I'm just listening to what you said and – 
thinking about just from a incarceration perspective. So if they're seeing an uptick in the amount of marijuana coming into their state, they're seeing an uptick in the amount of marijuana-related crimes. You know, obviously, it's their choice of how they deal with that. Do they decriminalize it some? Do they legalize it? Or do they keep enforcing the crimes? They could argue. I mean, I don't know if this is a valid argument, but they could argue that Colorado is partially at fault for the an increased amount of criminals, therefore an increased amount of prison costs, therefore an increased amount of taxation they need to, to put on their population within that state. I don't know if that makes sense or if that's something that they either did pursue in this case or if they would pursue at a later time. But it's I don't know. It's definitely a, an interesting subject and I think something we're going to hear a lot more of going forward. So let's move on to the next topic here. Actually, we're not going to move that far. We're going to stay in the state of Colorado for this one. And this one is titled, Threats Against Colleges Could Become a Felony. Uh, There is a representative in the state of Colorado, Jovan Melton, and his bill, uh, House Bill 16-1307, which aims to make such threats against colleges only a felony. And he calls it the Campus Safety Act. Now, this law, like I said, this proposed law would not apply to threats made against high schools or middle schools or elementary schools. It would only affect colleges. Melton says that the laws in place adequately deter against threats. So it's sort of interesting. There was a study linked to, or actually not even linked to, just cited in this article that talked about the average cost associated with a hoax threat. And this is what they're mainly talking about is uh, the argument for this law in favor of this law is to compensate for the cost of these hoax threats, saying that each threat costs law enforcement $8,000 alone. So this accounts for students being released from classes and things like that. Actually, I think the $8,000 was quoted as just law enforcement. If it causes class disruption of any kind, it jumps up to 40000 I think. You are correct. No, you're correct. Yeah, I misread that, which that is hard to believe. <laughs> That's a lot of money for just, uh, you know, for just having to evacuate a, a classroom. But I don't know if this is the best way to deal with this. Obviously, you don't want people making threats against colleges, uh, disrupting things. I mean, you don't want any sort of – I mean, I, I think a threat against a, a college, that's really a, a form of assault. I mean, that's really a form of assault on those people. You're threatening them. So I don't know if it should be a felony. If it is a felony, does word get out there enough to actually deter people from doing it? I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, JB? Well, it's tough. I can see what they're trying to do here, but it doesn't – I'll use the term the spirit of the law, I can understand, but it doesn't seem to make much sense in practice because they're saying that it costs $8,000 just with law enforcement to deal with these hoax threats. So they think the best solution is to pile on a felony charge and the costs involved with prosecuting a felony charge and subsequent jail time and the cost of that to the state to deal with it. I don't know. That is an excellent point there. That's an excellent point. I feel like this law will just make this more expensive. And the deterrence aspect of it, I think, is probably pretty low. It's not like people, I would assume, this is, of course, the assumption that most people who are um, calling in a bomb threat to a school, for example, doesn't particularly care about the legality of the issue. 
making it a felony versus a misdemeanor, I don't, I feel won't have much of a difference in whether people do it or not. And even if you do get some people and arrest them and charge them with felonies, I don't think the actual, I guess, the charge is enough or would even be known well enough to prevent anyone who wants to do something like this to not do it, you know? Right. So it's not really deterring it. And by doing so, there's a chance they could even be making it even more expensive exactly. by making it a felony, which I think that's a very good point. You could argue and, you know, you maybe make these perpetrators pay for the cost of the law enforcement, you know, have law enforcement really document what the costs are. And maybe that is in the law already. I kind of doubt it when you see stuff like this. Normally, the fines really don't equate to, you know, dollar for dollar what the cost of the actual crime is, what the and this isn't property damage. This is uh, resource damage, I guess. Wasted resources. So you could try something like that and then, you know, talk a person's pay so much every month until they pay it off. I don't know if that's going to deter anyone either. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. And at the very least, if it doesn't deter any, anyone, at least they're recouping the cost of dealing with it. So mm-hmm. I think at least you would win in that aspect. I agree. So let's jump to the next story here. We're going to stay in the higher education sphere here. We're going to move to University of California, Santa Cruz, where there were six students arrested for they had ordered ecstasy online from overseas somewhere. U.S. Customs and Border Protection intercepted. It was 4.1 pounds of ecstasy pills mailed from overseas. And the value of the drugs uh, is said to have been $100,000, which I don't know a lot about ecstasy. Four pounds of it, $100,000. That seems like that is a shit ton of ecstasy. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how much money they can turn that into, but you, I would assume that might be in the high hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of dollars. So these six kids, I don't know if this is their first time doing this. Um, you would think if they'd done it before, there'd be a, a trail of uh you know, expensive gifts or cars or, or whatnot. But I know it, it, they did cite in the article the one girl that was arrested tied to this. Her lawyer obviously was saying that she was working her way through college and uh, she had, I think, a job as a server and maybe kind of alluded to her doing this to pay for college. And that's one thing I thought of, not to excuse this because, you know, I'm not going to advise that anyone take ecstasy or break the law to make money, but it's kind of something that you can... I'm not going to say it makes sense for this to happen, but it's something that you can see happening. You know, you have rising higher education costs and you have illegal drugs, which gives you an incentives and gives you ability to make a profit margin to make money to pay for those higher education costs. So they've, there's been a situation set up where obviously there's people taking advantage of this to educate themselves, which is kind of a crazy thing. Yeah, it was tough to read this one because... Like you, I guess. I was a little conflicted on it. I don't necessarily condone this behavior, especially when you're already in college and the costs are just too high to get caught doing this. And it's essentially going to ruin your life. So I wouldn't, rec- like you said, I wouldn't recommend this to anyone. But I don't know. It's just, it's tough to, I guess, make a call on this case. It's just hard. I thought it was good of the uh, president of this university came out and immediately when this happened, these kids were arrested, they were suspended. He lifted their suspension so they could take their final exams. I guess they were final exams, some sort of exams, so they could continue on towards graduation, which I thought was kind of 
first of all, rare and a, uh, a good thing to do. But I don't know. It's a tough case. And another thing this reminds me of is the whole Silk Road thing. And, you know, a lot of libertarians will probably look at a case like this and just automatically say, you know, these kids, you know, they committed no crime. You know, they didn't hurt anyone, which is true. They didn't hurt anyone. But there is a law on the books and they knew what they were doing. They knew it was illegal. So, I mean, you can say they should be set free, but that's not going to set them free. And unfortunately, their lives are probably ruined. So, I mean, with that being said, I don't want to dwell on this too long. It's just a, it's really just a sad case to see. Let's move on and play our game. Is this a crime and should anyone do time? Now, this first one, interesting case, as these, this is a crime and should anyone do time, always are. But the title of this is No Felony Charge for a Woman Who Brought Gun to Courthouse. So we're saying, wait a minute, how do you bring a gun to a courthouse and not get a felony charge? This happened in Fairfield, California. A woman brought a Colt 22 caliber revolver into a courthouse. And she was originally charged with a felony, but it's been reduced to a misdemeanor because her attorney claims that the weapon happened to be in a satchel that the woman picked up an hour earlier from a donation bin at a, uh, I guess, a, a Christian church or a at a Christian center. And there was also some marijuana in the satchel as well. And the lawyer is claiming that the woman didn't know, uh, didn't know the gun was in there. I'm assuming didn't know the weed was in there and just picked it up. Now, I don't know if, yeah. if I believe that. I can't really believe that defense worked to take it from felony to misdemeanor. Even if she didn't know that, it's surprising that that worked. But what are your thoughts on this uh, situation here? Do you think this should be a crime? And do you think this woman should do some time for bringing a gun into a courthouse? This case is ridiculous. Not like the fact that she was charged with anything, but just what's going on in this case is completely ridiculous. I'm kind of on you on this boat that I find it hard to believe that she didn't know. But I don't really know the logistics of the satchel. I think I read in the article that the papers that she put in for a court date were pretty much laying on top of the stuff. So it wasn't like it was in a different compartment or something like that. But, you know, I guess I, I have to give her the benefit of the doubt and say that she didn't realize, especially since there were none of her fingerprints on the gun. So she didn't handle it in any way at least barehanded, and it was unloaded. So I guess the implication was she wasn't trying to use it at the courthouse. But, and the fact that it had weed in it as well is kind of like, this case is like ridiculous. But no, I don't think that <laughs> she should do any time for this. I would give her the benefit of the doubt, which it seems like the judge did as well, and say that this was just a mistake. I don't even know if I would charge her with a misdemeanor, to be honest with you, because... I don't know. It's too ridiculous. It's so ridiculous that it has to be an accident. That's how I see it. I have to give the person the benefit of the doubt that this was accidentally happened because I can't imagine someone purposely doing this at a courthouse. Yeah, it's so incredibly stupid that it has to be an accident. I will say this. If I ever do get in any sort of trouble, anything remotely bad, I want this woman's lawyer because I do not understand how he got this argument to pass. But but he did and he's under crime down to a misdemeanor. So the next one we have here is a man facing felony charges after police find swords and nunchucks in his backpack. This is in Lincoln, Nebraska. A 29-year-old man has been charged with illegally possessing a weapon after police say they found swords and a pair of nunchucks in his backpack. I do want to say, though, I always thought it was nunchucks. I guess it's nunchucks. Yeah, I never it's, knew that. and none. And I watched a lot of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles growing up. I must not have been listening close enough to pick that up. 
So what happened here at around 1.45 a.m., woman calls the police and says that this man is threatening people with a stick, saying he's out of control. Uh, the officers show up. This guy's not listening to him. He's being belligerent. So they arrest him. There's a struggle uh, that goes on. And it apparently it took five officers to take him down. I don't know if that's believable or not, but you know maybe that's true. And during the search after they arrest him, that's when they found the two 27-inch long swords and a pair of nunchucks. So they obviously took him to jail, and uh, he's facing charges of a, a felony charge, in, being in possession of a deadly weapon. This guy was also convicted in 2013 for assaulting a police officer. So that's why it's the felon in possession of a deadly weapon. So, JB, first of all, how the heck do you hide two 27-inch swords in a backpack? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> this must be quite some backpack, maybe one of those hunting ones or something like that. I have no idea how that happens, but... Is this a crime to be walking around with the swords in your backpack and the nunchucks and being belligerent, and should this guy do time? Well, if he's threatening people, you know, that especially with a stick... That's definitely not something that I would say that safely violates the non-aggression principle. In my personal opinion, you probably shouldn't be threatening random people in the streets with a stick. And I think law enforcement are well within their bounds to come and at least tell you to to leave at the very least or arrest you in this case when it takes five officers to take you down. But I think the reason he's being held is the fact that he has, I think if he wasn't arrested for in 2013 for this police officer assault, I don't think this, they would have pretty much bothered that he had some swords and nunchucks. I don't know Nebraska's laws, but I'm fairly certain it's not illegal to transport swords and nunchucks, at least in Pennsylvania. That's good to know. That's good to know. I just wrote that down just uh, but in case I want to carry around some swords with him in my backpack. I think the main issue with this question is, should felons lose the right to bear arms forever once they get out or whatever they've served their time and now they're out in the streets and there are people around that they and some people might want to do them harm but now because of a felony maybe this was a mistake that they made that they've completely repented and paid for they're no longer allowed to defend themselves forever so i don't know if the only reason he's being charged with the felony is because of this prior charge in 2013, I would say no. But if there's more to the story that I don't know about, then I guess my answer would change. Yeah, certainly from the story, it does read like that is all he's being charged with. Not being charged for assaulting anybody, not being charged for even assaulting a police officer or resisting arrest in this incident, even though it kind of sounds like he did. And I agree with you on uh, talking about should felons have the right to defend themselves? Should felons have Second Amendment rights? It's ridiculous. It doesn't make logical sense. So this man in 2013 assaulted a police officer. So he spends some time in jail and they release him saying that, OK, we're going to let this guy out, but he's not safe to be out. So he can't have a gun. So if this guy was dumb enough to assault a police officer Who's going to think he's not dumb enough to go get a gun illegally and harm someone? I don't know how you measure if someone is reformed enough to be released. Because I think if they are released, I think once you let someone out of jail, they should have all their rights. Because even if they don't have all their rights, they're still in a free society and there are black markets and they have the ability to acquire things illegally. 
And if these are people coming from a jail situation who've committed crimes before, then what's to stop them from committing crimes again? It just doesn't make any sense. You know, it's one of the reasons that I do this podcast is to bring up more situations like that and talk about this stuff because I think it is ridiculous. Yeah, I think you've seen that we've had several conversations on this very topic of really how do you determine when someone is ready to leave jail? You know, and it seems like even if there was a probationary period allowed, I would go as far as to, you know, compromise with a probationary period. Most of the time, especially felons, when they leave prison, they're under probation for a period of time. If you want to restrict certain rights under this probationary period, that seems reasonable enough. But once that has passed and they've proven themselves to be, you know, law-abiding, productive members of society, I strongly believe they should have all the rights as everyone else in this country. And that's basically how I see it. So, Yeah, if we're going to have a prison system that, and I don't think it does this right now, but a prison system that its stated goal is to reform people, to get them ready to go back into society, I think that should be the goal of the prison system. We need to find a way to measure that in a way, some way to at least quantify it. I mean, that's not to say that it'll be perfect. There will be errors and people will slip through the cracks, but there needs to be something put in place. So, you know, hopefully we can start to work towards that as a society, because I think as civilized people, you can't allow people back into a civilized society without all of their rights. That in itself, I think, is a pretty barbaric thing. I agree. So, JB, thank you for joining me today. We are out of time. We talked about a lot of stuff today. Just want to remind everyone they can check out the show notes, lionsofliberty.com slash FF12. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.